I, uh, it's the closest I'll ever be to being in the choir, but I've been singing Thou, O Lord, uh, with you off the internet, I think every day the last several days. What an incredible, incredible worship experience. If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. The New Testament book of Romans chapter 6. Now I know that this is a different kind of Sunday. It's different for you, I promise you, it's different for me. What I'd like for us to do in the next few minutes is to put everything aside except the study of God's word. Uh, my, my prayer is that we will see uh, how God's word this morning intersects with our lives, how our lives can change for the glory of God today, and then all these other things will take care of themselves in time, okay? Let's just focus together on God's word. When I come to Romans chapter six, there's a verse there that, if I'm just honest with you, has bothered me for a long time. Have you ever come across a verse that, while you know the Bible is true, there's no question about uh, the, the fact that the Bible has no error, it, it just doesn't square with your life. There, there are just some verses in the Bible that, that when I read them, they, they don't ring true for me. They, they upset me, in fact. And there's, there's a verse in Romans chapter 6 that has bothered me for years. When I would read it, it would just bring condemnation to me. I, I would avoid this verse as, as often as I could, and I would be reading through the book of Romans, and, and I would get to this verse, and I would know it was coming, and I would just make sure I scooted past it as quickly as I could because this verse has just been a problem for me. It's been a, a burden for me for a long time it, it, until just a couple of years ago when I really felt like the Lord helped me to understand what this verse means in the context of Romans chapter six. And it has gone from being a burden to me, it has gone from being something that was a source of condemnation to something that is my, is my victory cry. It, it, it went from being something that, that just brought gloom to something that brings thanksgiving and praise. And I wanna share with you this, uh, this troubling but this encouraging verse. And really it's just about eight words. It's just the first few words of Romans chapter six, verse 14. So let's look at that together. Romans six fourteen. In the Bible I'm reading it says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you. Now let's be honest. Does that verse seem a little askew from how you live your life. I read that verse and I'll be transparent with you this morning. I know the struggles that I have with sin. I know the fights that I have with temptation. I know the times that I've been on my knees in tears confessing my sins to the Lord. And then I read this verse written to Christians by the apostle Paul that says sin will have no dominion over you. And I think, well, something must be broken. Either God's word is broken or I'm broken. There's a problem here because so often it certainly seems like sin has dominion over me. But then God showed me that the first 13 verses in Romans chapter 6 shed light on the 14th verse and turn the impact of this verse around 180 degrees. So I want us this morning to do some investigation. I want us to learn what it means and how it can be a, a cry of victory that sin will have no dominion over us. So if we're gonna do that, we need to begin by establishing two facts. 
Number one, it certainly seems like sin has dominion over us. People inside the church, people outside the church, you have to admit that there are some sins, there are some circumstances where you find yourself weak and sin seems to have dominion over you. We've got to start by admitting that. This verse says one thing, but it certainly seems in our life that sometimes something else is true. Now, the second fact that we need to establish before we just begin our investigation is that in addition to us being weak with some sins, sometimes sin just surprises us. I mean, there are some sins I know I'm weak about those sins, but then there are some sins, and this brings a lot of fear sometimes to our lives, there are some times that sin just surprises us, that we've, we find ourselves in the midst of sin, we, we never saw it coming. One of the things that pastors hear often, it's, um, it's discouraging when we hear it, but we hear it often, people will call us and say, pastor, I never thought I would do what I've just done. And they're telling the truth. They, they never did. Sin can surprise us. I got a call from a former chairman of deacons uh, in my church. Um, actually, I wasn't pastor of the church. I was associate pastor of a church over 20 years ago. And the chairman of deacons, I was close to him then. I haven't talked to him in, I don't know, 10, 15 years. He called me two weeks ago. And he said, Noel, I've done something. And I've destroyed my family. My wife is brokenhearted. My kids won't talk to me. He said, I never imagined that I would do what I've done. See, sin can surprise us. So it certainly seems like sin, sin has dominion. And sin can surprise us. So, so what should we do? Well, we should know, first of all, that there are some reasons why sin will surprise us. Sin surprises us, uh, I think, first of all, because of its deceptive nature. Sin is deceptive. And when we get engaged in sin, I, I think our IQ drops about 30 points. When somebody gets into sin, they just can't see things that other people can see. Have you ever known somebody and they were going down a path and they were headed for destruction? And you could see it. Everybody around them could see that this was a terrible path, that they were making terrible decisions. And you wondered, why doesn't that person just turn around? Why doesn't that person just stop what he's doing before, before he destroys his family, before she destroys her reputation? Well, you know why it's easy for you to see and it's not easy for them to see? Because sin looks different on the inside. It's just the very deceptive nature of sin. It looks different from the inside than it does on the outside. And, and while it's easy for you to see, it's very difficult sometimes for them to see the deceptive nature of sin. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he wrote about uh, a man who was pursuing an adulterous relationship in Proverbs chapter 7. And it's interesting, and you may want to go back and read that. He talks about all the different stages that this person goes through. As he, uh, as he walks into sin that ends up costing him his life. But in the middle of that passage, I just want to read something to you that, that, that I think is interesting. It's an interesting observation. So Solomon is describing this man. He says, at once he follows her, speaking of this, uh, this woman, at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a deer is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. He, he, he says this person that's chasing this, this relationship, it's, this, it's, it's, it's as if he is, a, he is an ox going to the slaughter and the ox has no idea 
that he's about to die. Like, like a bird going into a trap. The bird has no idea. And so sometimes we're surprised by sin because just the very deceptive nature of sin, once you get into it, it's hard to see where you are or where you're going. Now, another reason why sin will surprise us is the slippery slope of sin. Uh, You've heard that phrase before. Sin sometimes seems to have its own gravity. And the further you go into sin, the harder it is to stop. When we sin, often we think that we're meeting a desire. The Bible says that sin starts with a desire. And so we, we are tempted by sin. We're enticed, as the Bible say. And we think if we will just sin, if we'll just take one step in sin, that it will satisfy that desire, that itch that we have. But you know, sin never satisfies a desire. Sin just creates more desire. And so people will take one small step into sin, and the next thing they know, they've taken another step and another step, and then on that slippery slide. In my backyard, we have a big hill. Now, central Ohio... Uh, where I live is almost as flat as East Texas. Not quite as flat, but almost as flat. But I have a hill in my backyard, and so we have a lot of families over from time to time, especially holidays. We'll have a lot of people over to the, to the house. And one of the things that we'll do in the summer, and so I'll tell you this so you'll know that there are rednecks in Ohio. <laughs> one of the things that we'll do is we'll cover the hill with uh, plastic. We'll go and buy these big sheets of plastic, and we'll put a water sprinkler at the top and put soap on it. And, and we'll watch the kids and a few of the adults venture up on top of the hill and slide down. It's a big hill. It's a steep hill. You go really fast. Uh, uh, so break bones. I mean, it's real exciting. <laughs> but you see the little kids get up there. And it's fun to watch them because they're, they're, they're scared. It's, especially when you get up top and you're looking down. It's, it's frightening. And so they'll sit down just where the hill flattens out at the top. And uh, they're, they're, they're pondering, they're considering. And so they'll inch just a little bit forward and a little bit further until they're right on the edge and then a little bit further. They're trying to decide. And then all of a sudden you see the look on their face when they realize they've gone one inch too far. <laughs> and they have completely lost control and down the hill they go. Well, see, that happens in sin all the time. It's a slippery slope of sin. That's why we're surprised. That's why we get into sin that we never really thought we would be guilty of. When I was a kid, we used to go to Stone Mountain, Georgia. Any of you ever been to Stone Mountain, Georgia? Just north of Atlanta. It's just a big rock. I don't know why people go to see a rock. There's a carving on the side of it, but people just go to see the rock. Now, it is a big rock. It's just a bald rock. It's just a big dome. Uh, it's five miles to walk around it, so it's a big rock. Uh, it's uh, 850 feet tall. And so if you get on top of the rock, there's a, there's a tram or gondola that gets you to the top of the rock. Uh, you, you can look out, you can see the city of Atlanta in the distance. Uh, but there's a fence there to keep you from getting near the edge. Now, when you're, when you're behind the fence, it just seems like they put the fence in the wrong place because there's all kind of rock in, on the other side of the fence. You think, well, why didn't they put the fence 50 feet further out? Well, in 2010, there was uh, a couple, it was their honeymoon, and they were, they were taking a tour of Stone Mountain, and they were looking at the site and wondering, like everybody else has wondered, why is the fence not further out? And the husband decided he would jump the fence. So he got on the other side of the fence and he, he took a few steps. Nothing happened. He took a few steps. It was a little bit downhill, but not much. 
So he looks back, his wife took some pictures of him. He took a few more steps. He could tell it was getting steeper, but nothing that he couldn't handle. And a few more steps and a few more steps until finally he slipped and he reached and he tried to get purchase on the rock, and, but he couldn't. It was too slippery. It was too hard. And, and he slid down. He ended up falling vertically 650 feet onto a granite ledge. It killed him instantly. Uh, see, sin... Sin is a slippery slope, and it surprises us because so quickly it can get out of hand. Uh, another reason why I think sin surprises us is, is this false confidence that we have in barriers. See, most of us have made some commitments that I will never do whatever. I will never be unfaithful to my wife. I will never steal from my employer. I will never betray that confidence. And we make these commitments and it's good to make commitments. It's, it's good to have these barriers in our lives. But the problem is sometimes we, we put such confidence in these barriers that we think that because I've made these commitments, I will never fall, that I will never be tempted to do those things because I have put my foot down and I have promised I would never do that. But well, the problem is you're not nearly as good at keeping the rules as you think you are. And when we think that that promise is enough to keep us from being tempted, to keep us from sinning, then we're living in a, in a very dangerous place. What it does is it creates this false confidence that denies the fact that sin can sometimes be very resourceful and very tenacious and, and have great ingenuity. When we get caught in sin, no promise, no barrier is going to keep us from going forward if that's the only place we've put our, our, our confidence. It was Jesus who said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What Jesus says is that sometimes our spirit will make commitments that our flesh is not willing to keep. And so we put this false confidence in, in barriers and sin surprises us. So, so, so what do we need to do? How do we need to regain control of our lives? How can we make Romans six fourteen when it says that sin will have no dominion over you? How can, how can we make that true in our lives? Well, it's interesting. Romans chapter six, I want to go back and read in verse 11. We're going to read three verses, 11, 12, and 13. And we're going to see three ways that we can regain control of our lives. Now, this is a simple message. This is the message I would have preached at First Baptist Church of Heath, Ohio. If I were there this week, they will probably hear it next week. Uh, there's nothing fancy about this, but this is critical information. Each point is going to build on the next. The first one's going to lay down the foundation. It's going to be the most important. And then we're going to see one step beyond that. And then finally, the third one will build on the first two. But here's how this verse, this, this declaration that sin shall have no dominion over you, how it can become a victory cry in your life instead of condemnation. So the first thing that we must do, number one, is we must know our place in Christ. And so let's read Romans 6. I really want to read all three verses and then we'll jump into this. Verse 11 says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we must consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions and do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, 
But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the first thing we need to do is to know our place in Christ. Now, I know that sounds sort of theological. It is. Uh, but, but listen to me. And we're going to get into some high weeds here perhaps, but this is the most important part. If you don't get this, if you don't know who you are in Christ, you will not be successful at regaining control over your life and being able to say that sin has no authority in my life. So, so what is our place in Christ? Well, look back at verse 11. He says, so consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, dead to sin... Uh, we, we know some of what that means. Dead to sin means that as a Christian, Jesus has died for me to pay the penalty for my sin. Now, probably everybody here knows that. The reason I'm a child of God is not because I've kept all of the rules. The reason I'm a child of God is not because I'm a really good person. The reason I'm a child of God is because God sent his son Jesus to die and pay the penalty that I owed for my sin. That's the last verse, by the way, in Romans chapter 6, 623, the wages of sin is death. I deserve death. Jesus, when he died, his death has been applied to my life. His death is a substitute for my death, and that's how I am a child of God. But the death of Christ does more than that. The death of Christ does not just free me from the penalty of sin. The death of Christ also frees me from the dominion of sin. See, I, I'm a slave of sin. Everybody is a slave of sin, a slave to sin, before they know Christ is their savior. And this enslavement is a lifelong enslavement. There's no escape. The only way you can be free from being a slave to sin is to die. You know, we tell people sometimes, just say no. You ever heard that? That's a real unfair thing to say because most people you know are slaves to sin. They don't have a choice. Sin is their master. They can't just say no. But when Jesus died, not only did his death pay the penalty for my sin, it canceled the dominion of sin in my life. I am dead to sin. Now I can show this to you because I don't want you to think I'm just making this up. By going back and looking at verse 6, Romans 6, 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So he says, when Jesus died and I identified with his death, I have become a Christian. His death has, has been my death to sin and has broken the dominion of sin. It says the same thing in the next verse, verse seven, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And so I'm dead to sin, and then he says, I am alive to God. Verse 11, dead to sin, alive to God. Now, when Jesus died, he was dead. He was in the grave for three days, and then he was resurrected. It was new life for Jesus. Well, the Bible says that just as I have died with Christ, I've also been resurrected with Christ. I have been given new life in his resurrection. In fact, if you look back at verse five, you see this explained. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so I'm dead to sin because Christ died. And I have a new freedom, a new life. When sin calls my name, I can say I'm no longer under, under your dominion. I have new life because of the death 
and the resurrection of Christ. Now, think of your life as a, uh, as, as a walled city. Many years ago, cities were more city-states, and so every city would have a wall around it, ancient cities. And so imagine that you, that's your life. You're a walled city. And on the throne uh, for this city is, is sin. Sin is the ruler. Now, that's a picture of who you are before you know Christ. Sin is your ruler. He is sitting on the throne of your life. But the Bible teaches that when I become a Christian, that Jesus comes into the city and he sits on the throne. And, and sin is cast off the throne. And so now sin isn't gone. Temptation is still there, but now temptation, sin is not on the throne. Temptation is now outside the city wall with a bullhorn trying to get us to sin. And we can choose to listen or choose not to listen, but now Jesus is on the throne. Do you see the difference? I am dead to sin and I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now he says here that we should consider this, verse 11, consider the fact that you are dead to sin alive to God. That means that we make this a confident assertion of our lives that every day I wake up and I say, I am dead to sin. Sin has no authority over me. Sin cannot command me to do anything. I may hear sin's call, but I hear it from outside the city of my life. I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. I heard a story of a Marine. I don't know if it's a true story, but it, it, it certainly rings true. A Marine and served under a sergeant major that was particularly harsh. And every time they would see, these Marines would see this sergeant major, they, they would brace themselves for just this intimidating attack. And this sergeant major would get in their face and he would, he would shout at them and they, they would quake in fear because of this man. And so this, uh, this Marine, he was a former Marine. He hadn't been a Marine in two or three years. Uh, and he was at a ball game on the weekend, a college ball game, and he was walking through the crowd with his family, and he spotted the sergeant major. He was walking toward him through a big crowd of people. And when he saw that sergeant major walking toward him, he, he just, even without thinking about it, he stopped, he stood at attention, chest out, chin up, eyes forward, arms to the side, he could feel his heart rate quicken, his blood pressure rise as he just waited for the, for the sergeant major to come. And then it occurred to him, what am I doing? I'm no, I'm no longer in the Marines. That, that sergeant major has no authority over me. I can slouch my shoulders if I want to slouch my shoulders. I can, I can put my hands in my pockets if I want to put my hands in the pocket. But, but see, he, he started with just this automatic response that he has to obey someone who no longer has dominion over him. And we do the same thing. We have to consider the fact. It's a strong word. We must consider, we must count this fact that we are dead to sin. And we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. You, you will never be successful regaining control in your life until you know this truth. Until you know who you are in Christ. Now, there, there's a second step uh, that just builds on that foundation. Once we know our place in Christ, secondly, we need to follow a different path. So look with me at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Now, there he tells us that sin can reign, even for a Christian. Sin can reign if you allow it. It doesn't have to because, because of who you are in Christ. It has no dominion over you, but if you will allow sin to reign, it will. Now, what does he say will happen if you allow sin to reign in your life? He says right here in the end of verse 12 that it will make you obey its passions. So if you give sin a beachhead in your life, if you tolerate sin in your life, the Bible says that it will make you obey its passions. It will take you by the hand and it will lead you down a path that has a destination that you don't want to get to. If you give sin a beachhead, it will lead you down that path to that destination. He says it will make you obey its passions. So one of the problems we have when we think about sin is that we usually think of sin as, uh, as an event. If I sin, it's just an event, an independent event. Nothing happens before or after, it's just an event. I messed up yesterday, I sinned. I may mess up this afternoon, I may sin. We think of it as an event. But Romans 6, uh, 12 tells us it's not an event. It's a path with a destination. Sin's always going to take you somewhere. He says if you allow sin to reign in your life, then it will make you obey its passions. It will take you down this path. And so if we just look at sin as an event, we're going to fail to understand how serious could be its consequences. If we were to, um, if we had a snapshot of a bullet... And we were trying to figure out if that bullet was dangerous somehow. We couldn't tell from the snapshot. If I, if I could just show you on the screen a snapshot of the bullet, somebody had captured it with one of these fast, instant capture cameras, and it was just a bullet flying through the air. Now, if you just look at that, it doesn't look very dangerous. It's just, it's just a bullet. It's not harming anybody. It's not, it's not causing any difficulty. But you know, if we're, if we're going to really determine if the bullet is dangerous... We need to know more than just where it was at a certain time. What do we need to know? We need to know what path it's going on, and we need to know its likely destination. Because if the bullet is headed toward you, and its likely destination is in you, then it's a dangerous bullet. See, it's not about where it is, it's about where it's going and where it's going to end up. And if we just see sin as an event, then, then sin will never be very serious. So I failed. It was the sin. I ask God to forgive me and it's over. If we just see sin as an event, we'll brush sin off. But if we will see sin as a path that leads to a destination, well, then we can begin to regain some control of our lives. It allows us to choose a different path. Now, there's a, there's a verse in Proverbs, another verse in Proverbs, one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 27, 12. And I think I can show this to you on the screen. A prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. So this is talking about a wise person. A wise person looks to the future. He sees that sin is a path with a destination. He looks to the future. The simpleton, that means the foolish man, goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. One of the problems is that most of us just live in a state of denial. We, we, we know we have sin, but we don't think of it as a serious thing because we're just looking at it as an event. And, and, and then when we think about the consequences of sin, we think that instead of choosing a different path, we can choose a different destination. Let me tell you the problem with that. We, we think that, well, I, I'm not going to let my sin ruin my marriage. I'm not going to let my sin uh, go to this extreme. I'm not going to let my sin ruin my reputation. 
And so we, we think we're gonna, we can choose the destination, but you can't. If you get on the path, sin takes over, sin chooses the destination. If I, um, if I get in my car today and I get out here on Highway 59 and I drive south, 59 eventually turns into 69, is that right? Interstate 69, I go through Lufton, I continue on. And I, where am I gonna end up? Where's the end of that path? Well, I'm going to end up in Houston. At least I, th- I think so, if I've got my geography right. <laughs> so I'm going to end up in Houston. Well, what if I get on that path and I'm traveling south, but I don't want to end up in Houston? Then where am I going to end up? Well, I will still end up in Houston because that's where the path goes, right? Well, what if I'm a Christian and, 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 and I love the Lord and I'm a child of God? Well, then I'm going to still end up in Houston because that's where the path goes. What if I pray about it? I'm driving south on 5969 and I pray, oh Lord, please don't let me end up in Houston. Where am I going to end up? I'm going to end up in Houston because that's where the path goes. And that's what verse 12 tells us, that if I give sin a beachhead in my life, if I allow sin to reign in my life, it will make me obey its passions. It will take me to its destination. And so I have to choose a different path. I have to decide that my sin has a direction and a path. I have to choose a different path. Now, how do we do that? Well, that's the next verse and the third thing that we must do. So number three, we need to play for the right team. Verse 13 says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, the verse is a little confusing just because of the word members. Your Bible might say the parts of your body and that's a good, that's a good substitute. Uh, It's just referring to your hands and your feet and your, you know, your mouth, your lips, your, uh, your heart, your mind, just who you are. He says, don't submit who you are to sin, to unrighteousness, but rather submit that to righteousness. But, but as I studied this verse, I thought, well, that, that's obvious. That, that's almost too obvious. There's, there's got to be more to, to this. You, you don't just tell people, stop sinning. That, that, that's really what it seems to say. Well, just quit, quit doing things that are unrighteous and start doing things that are righteous. And certainly that's true, but, 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 but is there more to this here? And, and I think there is. I think it's telling us, first of all, that repentance, that, that, that's the turning away from sin and turning to the, to the things that God has told us to do. Repentance is not just something that happens in our minds. That's why he's talking about physical actions here in verse 13. Repentance is not just something that happens in our minds. And he's telling us that repentance is not just an emotional response. It's not just something that we're convicted about. It's not just something that we're sad about or upset about. No, no, repentance is something that actually happens in our lives. It's something that we do, that we do physically. We stop doing this and we start doing that. Too many times in churches and and with church people, when we think of handling sin, we're just thinking in terms of some mental process or some emotional process. I've... um, been in counseling sessions where, where it's very easy to get people to agree that what they're doing is unwise. It's easy to, to, to explain to somebody that their sin is not a good idea. 
that it's a bad path that they've chosen. And so you talk to them a while and they say, well, okay, I agree. That, that's a bad path. The, the, the consequences of this is bad. Well, that's easy to do. And, and it's easy to get people to feel bad, badly about their sins. It's, it's easy to make people emotional about their sins. But there's something more that has to happen. Often it's very hard to get somebody to change something. And that's what he's saying here. He's he's saying that you need to take your members, take the parts of your body and quit submitting them for unrighteousness, quit quit using them for sin and start using them for for godly things. He, He says this isn't just something that happens in your head. This isn't something that you just feel very sad about or emotional about, but this is something that ought to, there ought to be some real change in your life. I told you about the Chairman of Deacons, I spoke to a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, and he shared with me his problem. And I, I said, well, uh, you, you know that um, you, know, you continue to do that, and, and the consequences are just going to be terrible. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I know. That's why, that's why I called you. I said, and, and, and you know you've, you've broken your wife's heart. And, um, you know, your, your children, your daughters, they're, they're brokenhearted over this. He said, oh, I... Pastor, I know, I feel terrible about this. And I said, well, then here's, here are three things that we need to do today. And I, and I started to tell him what to do. And he said, well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. I have, I'm busy and I got some other things. And, and, and see, what he wanted to do was just, he wanted it to be in his mind. He wanted it to be in his heart, but he didn't want it to be in his life. If, if we're going to have some, some real control in our lives, we've... We have to understand who we are in Christ and we have to understand this whole path and destination, but then we have to, we have to actually stop something and then we have to invest our lives into something that, um, that is good. There's something more I noticed in this verse just, uh, just a couple of days ago. I was, I was reading uh, the original language and as, as you may know, the, the Bible was, uh, the New Testament's written mostly in Greek and I'm not a Greek scholar and I'm not gonna tell you a bunch of Greek words you don't wanna know and that's fine. But sometimes you can see things in the, in the original that you can't see in the English. And this is, this is one of those situations. And so as I was reading verse 13, the word uh, instruments in my Bible translation do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present them as instruments of righteousness. That word instruments is used four other times in the New Testament, and each of the other times just translated very differently than that. It's always translated weapons, weapons. What, what it's saying is don't, don't let the members of your body be weapons for unrighteousness, but, but allow them to be weapons for for righteousness. So, so imagine that you're in this battle and on the battlefield, laying around the battlefield are these weapons. And one of the weapons are your hands and, 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 and your, your, your mouth and your mind. And it's your body. And what he says here is that in this struggle with sin, either sin is going to pick up those weapons and use it in his fight or you can pick up the weapons and use them in your fight. But somebody's going to pick up the weapons. And if we're going to regain control of our lives, what we have to do is start making a change. When I think of sin, and I shared this with, uh, with my church a couple of weeks ago. You know, I've come to the place where I'm just really 
tired of sin. You, you know what I mean? Usually when we say that, what we mean is we're really tired of other people's sins. And, and you know, I am and you are. But the person's sins I'm most tired of are my sins. I'm really tired of sinning. Now, there have been verses in the Bible that I've run to for years, and good verses, and verses that have brought comfort and peace and, and will in the future. Uh, verses I've run to when I've sinned, like 1 John 1, 9, do you know that verse? That if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Isn't that good news? I think about what the Bible says. When I'm, when I'm guilty of sin and I'm convicted about sin, I, I think about how the Bible says that he will wash us white as snow. I, I think about how the Bible says that he will separate me from the guilt of my sins as far as the east is from the west. And, and those verses have brought comfort to me, but I, I need something more. I am tired of going to God over and over and over and confessing the same sins again and again. And I know of God's forgiveness and I'm thankful for God's forgiveness and I will always need God's forgiveness. But listen, I've got a new verse now that I go to. Today, it's Romans 6, 14. Today, I know I can say that sin has no dominion over me. Because I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's not some sin that I can't, with God's help, beat. There's not some sin I can't have victory over. There's not some change that I just cannot make with the Holy Spirit's help in my life. I can be a new person because sin has no dominion over me. And there's a difference between just living a life of defeat and, and crying out for God's forgiveness over and over. And, 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 and beyond that, living a life where we can declare the power of God in our life for real change to happen. Listen, because of who we are in Christ, things are different. I'm not just forgiven. Things are different. Sin no longer reigns if we'll keep our trust in him. Now, let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. I want to pray. So Romans chapter 6 confuses a lot of people. It's a, it's a complicated passage. And, and it says things that just sometimes don't, don't ring true. We, we feel like we're under the dominion of sin. But what good news we discover that if we'll recognize who we are in Christ, if we will recognize that sin is not an event, but it's a pathway with a destination, and we choose a different path. And then we say, I'm not just going to feel differently. I'm not just going to think differently. But starting right now, I'm going to live differently. What we will discover is the power of God in our life to bring change is immeasurable. Father, I pray that people will know, that I will know what it really means to be free of the bondage of sin. That I won't stiffen up, stand at attention when temptation comes my way. But Father, that I will know that because I'm dead to sin and alive to God, that with the Holy Spirit I can say no. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.